Glad you're here. You know, it's never a good sign when the pastor brings a lunch to the service, right? <laughs> oh, we are gathered together uh, to, to worship our, our God and uh, um, really just making kind of a shift uh, in focus just based on everything going on uh, in terms of racial tensions in our, in our country, in our world, uh, and particularly how the Bible speaks to that. You know, many of us grew up singing a song, I don't even know if it's politically correct anymore. Jesus loves the little children. You know, all the children of the world, come on. <laughs> Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. And we know that's true. I mean, there's something intuitively that says to us that that's true, but even though we truly believe it as a culture, as a society, we're still struggling to truly live this out, aren't we? I mean, as the events of recent days have reminded us, while we've come a long, long way, we still have a long way to go. And we praise God for the progress we've made as a, as a country, as a culture, as a society from those days when the first slaves were brought to the shores of Virginia in August of 1619. We've made progress from the horrible days of the, the Jim Crow laws and segregation. We've made progress since the civil rights movement of the 1960s. And yes, even in the Christian church, with its own horrible history, in this regard. Too often, we've acted in ways that have had little to do with the songs that we sing or the Christ that we claim to follow. We've made some progress, but we still have a long, long way to go. And here's the thing. Our understanding of exactly how far we've come and how far we have yet to go may depend a great deal upon where you sit and what your own personal experience has been. I think Tony Evans said it very, very well. The racial problem is an unresolved dilemma of America. Racial problems have gone on since America's inception because their root has not been addressed by the people who are most qualified to address it the church. The goal of the church should be to glorify God by reflecting the values of God among the people of God through letting the truth of God be the standard by which we measure right and wrong and the way we accept skin color, class, and culture. And so what I want to do in this series of messages is look for some common ground. And I know in the beginning that the only hope for common ground is going to be founded on what Tony talked about, the, the unchanging truth of God's Word. And so I want us to look for that common ground. I will admit from the beginning that I will not be able to say over the next three weeks everything that can and maybe some of you will say should have been said about this issue. I get that. But I'm hoping to give us a foundation of common ground that we can continue to build upon. 
So I wanna focus on three things and then kind of one overarching thing. Today I wanna talk about what does the Bible have to say about race. And then next week we wanna talk about what does the Bible have to say about racism. And then we're gonna look at what does the Bible teach us about civility. And then kind of overarching all of that, I want to remind us, I want to lift up, I want to continue to point toward Jesus' vision of the church as this new community, a community of of people who relate to God and relate to one another in a very distinct and different way. And so as we begin, the only place I know to begin is in the beginning, (laughs) And so I'm going to take you to the beginning, the very first chapter of the first book that we have in our Bible, the book of Genesis, as it records for us the creation account. And if we come down to verse 26, we find he begins to tell us a little bit about how you and I were formed. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, I know perhaps for some of us in the room, this is gonna be very, very basic, but... If we're going to find common ground, you go back to the fundamentals. And so quick, quickly, just a few things this reminds us of. The first is we were created. We were created intentionally by God. Every one of us has been created intentionally by God. You are not an accident. The amount of pigment that you have in your skin is not an accident. That the fact that you're living in this century is not an accident. The fact that we have gifts and abilities and strengths and weaknesses and aptitudes and and, and areas where you're just not any good at all, all of that. You were created intentionally by God. And not only were we created intentionally by God, but he tells us very, something very, very significant about our creation. That you and I, as human beings, were created in the image of God. And this becomes foundational to everything else we'll talk about. In the image of God. Now, theologians have been writing, and there's books of books about all the the different dimensions of what it means to be created in the image of God. Wayne Grudem kind of sums it up this way. The fact that man is in the image of God means that man is like God and represents God. That there is this uniqueness to human beings created in the image of God, like God, representing God to all the rest of creation. They are the ones who are uniquely designed for connection and community with their creator. And this is said of nothing else in all of creation. Nothing else carries with it this standing or holds this position bearing the title image of God. Not plants, not animals, reptiles, insects, fish, or birds, but we, you and I, were made in the image of our creator. We were made for connection. We were made for community with our 
creator. And this is significant. And again, we could spend a lot of time here, but did you notice the, the language there? There is a plural language used. He said, let us let us create, let us, let us make man in our plural likeness that God who has existed in community from eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit invites his image bearers into community with him. And that has implications. You and I, we cannot be fully human apart from a relationship with God. That's why week by week as we gather, we wanna invite people to know God personally through the avenue that's made possible through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ because we cannot be fully who God's created us to be apart from a relationship with him. But it also has profound implications for how we relate to one another. Grudem continues to write, this being created in the image of God has profound implications for our conduct toward others. It means that people of every race deserve equal dignity and rights. It means that elderly people those seriously ill, the mentally retarded, children yet unborn, deserve full protection and honor as human beings. If we ever deny our unique status in creation as God's only image bearers, we will soon begin to depreciate the value of human life. Does that not sound like our culture? We will tend to see humans as merely a higher form of animal and we will begin to treat others as such. We will also lose much of our sense of meaning in life. And this, this actually was behind the heart of Martin Luther King Jr.'s message. This understanding of that all of us were created in the image of God. It was founded upon biblical truth. When you begin to read his writings, when you study them, you realize this is what fueled his understanding of the civil rights movement, at least that the parts that he loved and agreed with. This is what fueled it, this understanding of humans created in the image of God and how that impacts the way that we should relate to one another. But there's a third part of this creation narrative. We were created intentionally by God. We were created in the image of God, but we were also created with an amazing uniqueness. An amazing uniqueness that just begins to be unfolded in this very first uh, chapter. He talks about he created them male and female. Now, now, I realize that even in today's culture, sometimes that might be a controversial statement, uh, but the Bible is clear that yes, there was this incredible unity, both created in the image of God, but there were distinctions from the very beginning. God made us all human in his image as men and women, but he gave each and every one of us unique characteristics as men and women. Let me just press into that for a moment. Every human being, who's ever been born, billions on the planet right now, who knows how many have preceded us. Every one of us is unique, even as we are so much alike. You have a unique fingerprint, your toe print, your vocal patterns, 
The patterns of the blood vessels in your eyes, the, the, the makeup of the iris of your eye, those are all distinct, and we could go on and on and on. Uh, God loves diversity in his creation. You look at the plants, you look at the animals, you look at human beings. God loves diversity. And while we're all created in the image of God, we are created with this amazing, amazing uniqueness and diversity, which then leads us to the next question. Where did races come from? Where did races come from? We're all created in the image of God. Where do we come from? Well, the Bible answers it from basically this first couple. And he, being God, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and, bound, and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That God, through Adam and Eve, through Noah's family, through the scattering of the Tower of Babel, created each and every one of us. Now there's a ton of information, and I probably wouldn't do it justice, uh, but there's this little video clip that I want you to see, and we've given you the, uh, uh, the uh, internet address so you can look it up, and the, the scripture's there in, in your note-taking guide, uh, but I just want to ask you to give attention because uh, this hopefully, succinctly, and not too overly simply, talks about how this process took place. I hear this one a lot. How can there be so many races in the world if we are all descendants of Adam and Eve? Well, check this out. First off, let's talk about the word race. Sometimes when people use the word, they mean supposed races of people who have evolved at different times, rates, and in different locations. That's not true. Of course, the word race is also a term we use to distinguish between groups with different physical traits, namely skin color. But are there really different races? Take a gander at Acts 17.26 where it is written that God, from one man, made every nation of men. It's clear then that the Bible teaches that there is one race, the human race. The Bible is also clear that all people on the earth are descendants of Adam and Eve who were created by God. Check Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Easy enough. God created two people in his image, male and female, and told them to increase in number. So Adam and Eve are mom and dad of the human race. Then their children had children and those children had children and so on and so forth for many generations until, according to Genesis 6, 9, the world's population was reduced to eight people who were protected inside an ark during a global flood. And those eight people later walked off the ark, and according to Genesis 9:19, from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Oh, wait a second. What do I mean scattered? Well, jump over to Genesis 11, and let's talk about an event known as the Tower of Babel. Basically, because of the sinful actions of the descendants of Noah, the Lord confused their language and scattered them from there over all the earth. That's pretty clear and concise. Okay, so we've got lots of people who are descendants of the eight folks who came off the ark, and now they have been scattered all over the earth. That explains that we are still one race and that different groups of people ended up in different locations. But how do we get a bunch of different colored people if we are all one race? Well, follow along. This, of course, is a simplified explanation, but the basic principles are true. We all have a pigment in our bodies called melanin, which, depending on different variables, produces different shades of the one main skin color we all possess. Several genes control the amount of melanin produced and thus the variability in the skin shade. In fact, it's easy for one couple to produce a wide range of skin shade variability in just one generation, as we'll see in just a moment. 
Time for a quick genetics lesson. DNA is the molecule of heredity that is passed from parents to children. A child inherits 23 chromosomes from each parent. Each chromosome pair contains hundreds of genes which regulate the physical development of the child. However, to illustrate basic genetic principles pertaining to the topic, we'll just talk about two genes, the genes that control the production of melanin. So, let capital A and capital B symbolize versions of the gene that code for large amounts of melanin, while little a and little b code for small amounts. Got it? Easy. Check this out. Take a look at the upper left. Let's say dad contributes capital A, capital B genes, and mom contributes capital A, capital B genes as well. Together they will produce a child with capital A, capital A, capital B, and capital B. This is a kid with a lot of melanin, thus he will have very dark skin. Easy to see. Here's the bigger point though. Let's say dad contributes capital A, capital B, and mom contributes little a and little b. Well, the child's skin will be middle brown shade, the combination of capital A, little a, and capital B, little b, which by the way represents a majority of the world's population. Not only that, but if each parent is capital A, little a, capital B, little b, the combinations that could be produced in their children could result in a very wide range of skin shades in just one generation. So. Since Adam and Eve were the first people ever, it makes sense to conclude that God placed in them a combination of genes that could produce all different shades of skin we see. Those same combinations would be present in Noah and the seven other people who boarded the ark. And because God dispersed people at the Tower of Babel, he dispersed the population thereby isolating gene pools in the different people groups. Over time, different cultures formed in different locations with certain features like skin shade becoming predominant. And here we are today. And since we all go back to Noah and his family, it makes sense that we are all different shades of brown. One race, multiple people groups, just like the Bible teaches. Simplified for sure, but enough said. Okay, you got all that, right? <laughs> so let's talk about it uh, a little bit more. Doc, Dr. Camera Jones uh, uh, talks about, and let's see if I can get this slide, there it is. Uh, race is a social classification, not a biological descriptor. The social interpretation of how one looks in a race-conscious society. Vodi Bakum talks about it this way. Race is, is actually a social construct. The concept of race is not a biblical concept. It's not a biblical idea, it's a constructed idea. You won't find the idea of races in the Bible unless you find the proper historical context where we see, number one, there were all the race of Adam. One race, one blood. We are all the race of Adam. There is less than a 0.2% genetic difference between any of us in this regard. He continues, in fact, we're not even different colors. Technically, from a genetic perspective, from a biochemistry perspective, we're all actually the same color. Our color comes from melanin. We've all got melanin, just at differing degrees. So it's not that some of us are this color and some of us are that color, no. We're just different shades of the same color. And some of us just have more melanin than others. And if you've ever heard or seen uh, Vodi uh, speak, uh, Vodi is a black man, and sometimes when he's teaching on this, he'll say, and listen, I want you to know that just cause God gave me more melanin than he gave you doesn't mean that God loves you any less, right? <laughs> you say, okay, Jeff, that, that, that sounds good, but let's face it, this does not deny 
that we develop different cultures and different social expressions. We do. You see that all over the world. You see that even within uh, one country, one area of the country. But these social and cultural expressions are not totally about the amount of melanin that you and I have in our bodies, right? They develop with a a complex series of of factors that uh, all enter into how we develop culturally and socially along the way. And sometimes I talk about it this way. I've lived in the Northeast of this country. I've lived in the Midwest. And now I'm living in the South. Now I've got a word for my Southern brothers and sisters. Not everybody drinks sweet tea, y'all. You understand? <laughs> and the fact is, if you're in different parts of the country, and if you say, uh, could you, I'd like some sweet tea, they would point to you the sugar on the table. <laughs> just don't know that. I know, I know Chick-fil-A and Krispy Kreme are trying to, to uh, resolve that across the country, but it's just not true. We develop all sorts of cultural distinctions. But here's the thing, and we'll talk more about this next week. It's sin. It's sin that makes these distinctions and differences into something that divides us instead of something that enriches us. Instead of celebrating the diversity and uniqueness that God built in from the very beginning with Adam and Eve, built in to his creation. Because of sin, it becomes that which divides us, that which becomes a point of hatred even, instead of that which enriches us along the way. And that brings us to Jesus' vision of a new community. A new community that, yes, even in the the face of sin, even in living in a sin-scarred world, that he was birthing this brand new community that was to lead and live differently than all the rest of the world. It was a community that had a supernatural unity. Paul writes about it this way in Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Greek. And by the way, there have been racial tensions throughout human history, right? It's not just an American thing. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And how in the world do we get to that point? He talks about it one verse earlier. For in Christ, it is only in Christ Jesus that we are all sons, sons and daughters of God. Through faith, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. That is why week by week when we gather, we we urge you, we invite you, we want you to know a a reconciliation with God that, that allows you to become, again, who God created you to be, and that's only made possible in Jesus Christ. Not just pick your own religion or pick your own spirituality, but uniquely in Jesus Christ through faith that I understand that he came and lived that life that I should have lived but didn't live and I rebelled against uh, that he died the death my sin deserved and he was buried and resurrected and ascended to the father is returning again someday and he did all of that so that you and I could only be reconciled to him 
but so that we could become a part of this new community. This new community that would be marked by a different way of living. What Jesus called a new commandment. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That this new community was going to live so differently in a world marked by, by hatred and tension and violence and separation and division, that there would be this new people who were not all the same with the amount of melanin they had in their skin or the culture they grew up in or the things that they are gifted at, but they would have this commonality in Jesus Christ. And in that commonality, they would be empowered and called to love at a higher standard, the standard of Jesus Christ. And it is that new community that is going to be celebrated throughout eternity. We have a glimpse of that in Revelation 7, John's vision. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Did you catch it? Every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, all that diversity of God's great creation, now all together saying and singing the same thing because the center is no longer those things that are different, but that thing, that one who binds us together, Jesus Christ. That's the vision for the new community. So, what do I do now? What do I do now? And in light of biblical foundation, in light of reality of what's going on in our culture, what do I do now? Well, let me give you a few thoughts to start. First, recognize. Recognize that we are on equal footing before the cross. We are all equally desperate. All of us equally in need of a rescue. We are equally loved, regardless of our culture, or our background, or our class, or the amount of melanin in our skin, equally loved. And if indeed we have trusted in Jesus Christ and Christ alone as our Lord and Savior, we are equally redeemed. We all are on equal footing before the cross of Jesus Christ. That becomes the foundation upon which we relate to one another. Secondly, I need to find my identity first and foremost in Christ. Find my identity first and foremost in Christ. What does that mean? I talked about this in a, in a class I was teaching last semester as we were, were talking about the issues of, of sexuality. Uh, but, but in that context, I, I said, I, I am not a fan 
of any descriptor in front of the word Christian. I, I, I'm white, <laughs> I'm male, I was born in America. But I don't want to be a white male American Christian. I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, first and foremost. By God's sovereignty, in his design, I have a body that's white. By his sovereign design, I was male. And by his sovereign design, I was born in America. I didn't choose any of those things. But that isn't what defines me the most. Are those true about me? Sure. Do they influence me? Absolutely. Have they impacted my experience in life? Sure. But my identity is not in my maleness or my whiteness or my Americanness, <laughs> but it is first and foremost in Jesus Christ that I am a new creation. And until, until first and foremost, our identity is in Christ. I think we will continue to focus on our differences more than those things that bring us together. I find my identity first and foremost in Jesus Christ. And can I just encourage you, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. I mean, we, we're in a culture and technology just fuels this where, where we just, we clap back, we talk back, we fight back, we snap back so quickly. And it's almost like we're all on a search for a trigger word or we're all on a search for just one phrase. Even, even if I like agree with 95% of what you say and think and, and believe, if I find that 5%, it's almost like I'm, I'm duty bound to jump on that. And that's not a 21st century problem. That's a human problem. That's why James said, know this, my beloved brothers, those of you who are part of this new community, live differently. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. how different even this moment might be if just beginning with the followers of Christ, we were quick to hear. Help me to understand. Help me to understand your experience, where you're coming from, what you're thinking, what this word, what this phrase means to you, what this action means to you. We were quick to hear and slow to speak. Whatever side of the spectrum you're on and slow to anger. Might some of the energy be fueled in ways that are much more constructive 
and much less destructive. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote many powerful things. One of the most powerful, and if you haven't read it, I would encourage you to just spend some time, go online. I think you can access copies of it. Kind of been entitled now uh, a, a letter from a Birmingham jail. And it was actually written to fellow clergymen who were questioning some of the, the tactics, if you will, uh, some of the, the, the sit-ins or the, 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 the protest marches and, and this sort of thing, and particularly when they were getting pushback and backlash from uh, the, the officials of the day. And I don't have time to, to show you the whole letter for sure, but just a couple of, of, of points because it leads into this fourth point. Where there is, in fact, oppression and injustice, God's people need to be at the forefront of repenting and correcting it. Where there is, in a sin-scarred world, in fact, and there is, in fact, oppression and injustice, it's not everywhere, it's not everybody, but there are things God's people need to be at the forefront of repenting where personal involvement is contributed to that. But even when it's not necessarily my personal involvement, we should be at the forefront of correcting it. And that was part of what Martin Luther King Jr. was trying to address in that letter from a Birmingham jail. Here's some of his words. One may well ask, as he wrote to his fellow clergyman, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. He goes on. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. But he is not the first person to ever think along those lines. The earliest Christians when confronted by the authorities and told, shut up. Don't speak anymore about this Jesus. You're, you're creating trouble. You're going to bring down the Roman authorities upon our head. You're gonna mess up what we got going here. Shut up. How did they respond? You decide. 
whether we should obey God or obey man. Now, Martin Luther King Jr. didn't advocate violence, but he advocated when push came to shove, even if it meant pushing hard against the status quo, even if it meant there were people who would stand in opposition to it, that the body of Jesus Christ should be at the forefront of confronting oppression and injustice. And so as I bring this to a close, I wanna try to give you a, a picture that I hope will be helpful. And if I can do this without breaking anything, it would be much more effective. Okay, I know those aren't like super large, but hopefully you can see those in the room. Three substances in a jar. And as I put them up there, I just quickly ask you, which of those is most unlike the other two? And some of you are no doubt on guard because you think obviously this is a trick question or he wouldn't be using it right now, all right? But let us assume that if you saw this without hesitation built in, most of us would very quickly say, this jar is different. And who could blame you? I mean, visually, it's quite different. But actually, the substance that is most unlike the others is this one. You see, these two are sugar. This is salt. <laughs> Chemically, by their use and everything else, these two are very, 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 very much aligned. This, chemically, and the way that you would use it, is very, very, very different. In fact, is the only difference between these two is one has some molasses in it. Melanin. As followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be at the forefront of reminding ourselves and reminding others that that which we have in common is far, 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 far greater than anything that makes us different. And that we need to celebrate the diversity and focus on those things that make us alike. Let you and I ask God to help us to lead the way. <laughs> Not the right or the left, but to be God's way. God's way. We're gonna continue to talk about this in the next couple of weeks. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you that we've come a long way. Whew, we've got a long way to go.
And so, Father, we just ask you, would you help us who name the name of Jesus Christ to be on the forefront? To be on the forefront because we know of the equal footing that we have before the cross of Jesus Christ. We recognize our own desperate need. We recognize the only hope that we ever had was in Jesus Christ. Help us to be on the forefront because you have redeemed us and saved us and you have called us to a new community that lives by a new commandment. Father, help us to be on the forefront because we recognize that that which makes us alike is so, so, so much more than anything that would make us different. And so, Father, we invite you in the midst of the madness that is this year, from viruses to racial tensions to horrible episodes of injustice, Lord, help us to be on the forefront of moving forward to the new community that's made possible in Christ Jesus. We ask this now in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.